There is a danger in the Lenten season of, uh, well, and also in life generally, I should say, of becoming focused upon ourselves with increased attention during Lent to what I'm giving up and how I'm going to, how I'm doing spiritually and sort of where my spiritual thermometer is at, we can all too easily lose, lose sight of the fact that our taking up the disciplines, including fasting, which we're doing as a community weekly, um, get ready to say goodbye to your TV shows this week, um, that these things that we take up are meant and intended to draw our desires and our affections and our attention away from the world, including ourselves, away from ourselves, and to place them squarely upon the God in whom and in whom alone our desires can be ultimately fulfilled. That is that the disciplines and the, the, the structure of this season for us is actually meant to lift our eyes from us up to the God who can ultimately fulfill us. But it's easy sometimes to, let our, to, to start just to focus on us. I mean, the question everybody asks in Lent, well, what are you giving up in Lent? And, and it's a kind of question that's centered on me, and that's easy. This focus upon God is a key to, the, to renewal uh, because it's only a vision of God and an experience of his love and his power and his mercy that can truly sustain and energize a genuine Christian life of discipleship following after Jesus. When we see God as he is, in his love and power and mercy, we can't help but be invigorated and compelled to follow him. That's why this is such an important part of renewal, is looking to God. And so our sermon series during Lent, which is entitled Mercy's Embrace, is actually intended to help us behold the God of mercy, to see and to set our eyes, to fix our eyes upon this God of mercy. And the title for this series is taken from the well-known parable of Luke 15, the prodigal son, and the embrace that the father gives to the wayward son upon his return home. And we'll be spending three weeks in that parable starting next Sunday for the following three Sundays, looking at that parable in Luke 15. But tonight, we're going to focus in at the end of Luke 13, which contains another picture of God's embrace, one that is as radical and compelling as any other picture that we have of this in the scriptures, I would say even including Luke 15. And in addition to giving us a picture of God, this passage also confronts us as God's children with a question, a crucial question for our lives. So in looking at this passage, we're going to take these two things in turn. First, the picture of God, and then the question that faces us. So the picture of God, firstly, here. Now, there's no mention of fire in Luke 13, 31 through 35. But the incredibly powerful and potent image that Jesus uses of himself in this passage calls fire to mind. In verse 34, this is what we read, what Jesus says. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. You would not. Fire is as destructive to animals as it is to human beings. But there are some species who have adapted ways, developed ways of protecting their young in the presence of fire. And the image that Jesus is drawing on here is a fire that approaches a farmyard where escape is not possible, the hen will gather her chicks and hide them under her wings to shield them from the fire. And there, there are stories of this kind of thing actually happening 
Um, myriads of these kinds of stories where she pays the ultimate price in the midst of the fire, her own life, to save the lives of her chicks, her children. And this is the picture that Jesus is applying to himself here at the end of Luke 13. And it's astounding. It's an astounding picture. Let me ask for a second, what is the threat? What is the fire? Historically, in this text, it's Rome and their rule over over Israel, over Jerusalem. But spiritually, it's Satan, with whom Jesus has already done battle in the wilderness, as we heard about last week from Luke 4, and who has Rome and, paradoxically, Israel, the Jews, God's chosen people, in his back pocket. We see evidence of this in verse 34, as we saw when Jesus says that Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets and and stones those who are sent to it. They're opposing God's purposes, which means that they're on the wrong side. They're in Satan's back pocket. The threat is the one who opposes the God of life in the world and opposes everything that Jesus is about in the world. And this threat, this threat is too much for you and for me. It was too much for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it's too much for us. And if we were to try to take on this threat on ourselves, it'd be a little bit like you or me getting in the ring with Mike Tyson in his heyday in the early 90s, you know, saying, let's go for it. We might be well-intentioned. We might have mustered all of our will, but there is absolutely no chance that we're going to come out of the ring alive. This threat is too, too much for us. Left to our own devices, we will perish under its hand. But in the midst of this situation, in the midst of our helpless situation under a genuine threat, it's there that Jesus gives us this amazing picture. It's a picture that picks up themes from the Old Testament where God says, for example, in Psalm 91.4, that he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Jesus will give himself. He will pay the ultimate price with his own life to shield us from the threat of evil and also of even God's judgment against evil. And this is just what he does for us at the cross. There at the cross, he takes the brunt force of evil alongside with the brunt force of God's judgment against evil and absorbs that force into himself. in a deep way, precisely so that those of us who are under that threat, in that place where the fire is raging, can go free, can find rescue, and can live and have life, and not just life, but have abundant life, the life that God longs to pour out upon his children. This is mercy's embrace in this text, shining brightly for all of us to see that Jesus is the one who steps in front of the bullet to shield us so that we might walk and go free. And it's not just that Jesus does this begrudgingly. This isn't just some kind of, uh, um, um, you know, one-off incident in the Gospels were in Jesus' life. We have to note something about Jesus and therefore about God in this text. In verse 34, he says, he says this, he says, how often I would have gathered you, children. He's lamenting here and saying, I would love to do this. This is clearly his desire. This is God's desire. This is God's heart for his creation, for his world, is to gather them under his wings, to shield them from the threats that they face that are too much for them 
to allow them to live and to go free and to have life. As we read in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is what he wants. This is his desire. And this is what is reflected when Jesus says, how often I would have gathered you. I want to give you a few places where we see this evidence. I've just mentioned the first, which is that Jesus is lamenting here over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. This isn't the the words or the phrase of someone who's taking glee in their upcoming destruction. This is the word of, of one who's grieved and troubled, of one who cares deeply, of a shepherd who's concerned for his flock and wants to woo them back into his fold. He's not gladly resigning them to judgment, but he's grieved over their hardness of heart. How often, he says, he would have gathered them together to protect them and to give them life, that they might have life. You know, this heart of Jesus is further displayed for us when he's hanging on the cross. When he cries out, while he's still hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in the depth of his pain and of his agony, at the climax of the battle, when the fire is the strongest and the hottest and the flames are raging in his life, when Satan is taking his final shot, we read last week that he would wait till an opportune time to come back. Well, the cross is that opportune time when evil, with all of its masks undone, is now laid full force upon Jesus. Even in that moment, under the full brunt of evil and under abandonment from his father, Jesus is crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's giving us a gracious read here. He says, they don't know any better. They're ignorant. Whoops. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They're lost. They're confused. They're wayward. They're in need of guidance. Please, Father, forgive them. Why? That they might have life. So even there, this heart is displayed for you and for me. And then I want to again take us then just a little bit further in the story to Acts 2. After Jesus is crucified and raised, Jesus and the Father then send the promised spirit to these wayward children to empower them to a bold witness. And he sends that promised spirit and promises to give it to even those who were the pawns of Satan and put Jesus on the cross. So Peter says this at the end of Acts 2, these words. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's this astonishing heart and mercy of God on display for all of us to see that he offers them life, not just life, but his own life, the person of the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of them. If only they'll repent and turn from their wayward living and return to him. Could we ask for any greater picture of mercy than a God who's willing to take the flames for us. He recognizes the perilous state, steps in between us in the peril, and holds the door open and shields us that we might go free. This is the picture of our God that we get in this text. And then this leads us secondly and finally to the question that this text poses to you and to me. It's a good question for this Lenten season. At the end of verse 34, Jesus says, you know, I wanted to gather you under my wings and you would not. And you would not. This could just as easily be translated, you were not willing. You did not want to. 
Jesus longs to stand in the gap for you and for me. He longs to gather us under his wings. But the question is this, are we willing? Are we willing to come under his refuge and protection to be recipients of such great mercy in our lives? You know, Herod wasn't willing. We read that in verse 31. Herod wanted to kill you, the Pharisees said. And these were not sort of empty threats because Herod had taken the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, thrown him in prison and then beheaded him. So Herod doesn't want to come under Jesus. Herod's father, Herod the Great, was the one who slaughtered all the male babies in Bethlehem who were under age two shortly after Jesus' birth. Jerusalem isn't willing to come under his wings, signifying in this narrative in Luke's gospel, all Israel, the people of God, aren't willing. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And it begs the question of why? Why why wouldn't anyone be willing to come under the care and protection of this kind of a king, this kind of a God? And the answer boils down to a form of control. Like Herod in Jerusalem, we may be too committed to our own traditions and customs and ways of life or trajectories or positions to come to Jesus. Something in us as human beings deeply, deeply desires control. And we often wield control in our lives. But what we're really oblivious to from our limited vantage point is that when we wield control, instead of watering the garden of life, we're pouring gasoline all over it. When we take control, it'd be like my four and a half year old son, Jameson, getting behind the wheel of our minivan in Boston. It wouldn't fare too well. You know, he might make some progress and get certain places, but there's bound to be carnage and damage done in his life and in the lives of the rest of you in the city if something like that were to happen. You can't see over the windshield. You don't know what's coming. You can't reach the pedal. And yet we try to jump in to that place of control. And that's the trickery, always the trickery of this deception of what we call sin or rebellion from God is that doing life on our own terms promises us so much, but ultimately is counterproductive and diminishes true life and leads to ultimate death and destruction in our lives. And this is exactly what Jesus is lamenting for these children in Jerusalem and for us. The destruction that they will bring upon themselves by hanging on to control instead of yielding to him. And obviously this certainly can happen in an ultimate sense for us, but it can also happen in an incremental sense as well. For many many of us who have ultimately surrendered our lives to Jesus and to his shelter, come under his shelter, we frequently take back certain bits and pieces of our lives for our own control. Perhaps it's the world of relationships or career ambitions or certain pleasures. And this season of renewal that we call Lent is a reminder to all of us to let go again, to lay down again those parts of our lives where we may have decided to pick up the reins again and come out from under Jesus' protection and the life that he longs to bring to us and put ourselves in harm's way. Is everything submitted in your life? Is everything relinquished for him? And remember that asking those questions of your life during this season is not a path to some kind of cramped life or diminished existence, but rather it's the way to abundant and overflowing life and joy and peace in the midst of a broken world. This is the offer that Jesus makes to us. This is why he longs for us to come under him.
And what compels us to make this move of being willing to come under the refuge of his wing once in our lives in an ultimate sense and every day, every hour in our lives as part of our ongoing maturity in him as king and Lord is the picture that we get of him in this text that we started with. That the one who's ultimately in control, who has all power and authority, is pleading with us, is kind to us, is lamenting over us, not so that we might continue mistaking the gas can for the watering jug, but so that we might come to him for true life and for refuge and for protection and for good. And when we see all of this, when we see his pleading, when we see his lamenting, when we see his his cry, Father, forgive them, when we recognize his longing to protect us, then we are won over back to him. We're renewed in our life in him. It's much easier to let go and to lay down our lives and to lay down control when we see the goodness and the mercy and the love of the king who's asking for us and for our lives and inviting us to do so. He beckons us to return to him, to take refuge in him and to use him as our shield so that we might truly live in life. And the word that we use for this kind of returning is repentance, which is simply about laying down our lives and our control, giving up our ways and taking up Jesus's way. This is the step of faith, of trusting obedience in our lives, where we identify solely and wholly with God's purposes in the world and in life and in Jesus. And as we do this, as we come under his wings, out of the fire, through repentance and faith, then and only then in our lives is the power of the devil and of sin and all of its deception and all of its false false promises actually broken. And we become slaves of this good, benevolent, and merciful king who put himself in the path of our destruction. Are you willing Are you willing to relinquish your life again right now, tonight, to this gracious and merciful King, to these hands that have been pierced on your behalf, that long to embrace you, to know the depth of life? That's the invitation that Jesus is giving to us. That's the picture that he's showing to us in this passage. And it might seem scary and perhaps it even seems weird, or maybe it just seems tedious to you to kind of think through this again in your life. But I can assure you without any doubt that this is the way into life. This is the way into renewal, into deeper and more abundant life, the living water that begins to flow in our hearts and overflow out of us into the world around us that desperately needs to see life. So let's let his great mercy, the mercy of a God who would step into the path of destruction. Draw us out. Lay us down. Perhaps for the first time tonight. Or perhaps just in a deeper and a more complete way in our lives tonight and throughout this Lenten season.